chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. Um, what a rich treasure it is to us. Even as, a, as we pray, I'm reminded of the psalmist who says your word is like the dripping of the honeycomb. Your word is more precious than much fine gold. May that be true in our hearts today. May you speak to us in such a way that there is sweetness in our hearts, preciousness in our minds, and a growing desire in our wills to do as Paul has called, to walk worthy of our God. We praise you that you too have called us into your kingdom. You have called us into your glory. And may we consider how that should impact our lives today as we hear from you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope you uh, had a nice long weekend, enjoyed uh, your 4th of July festivities. I trust you had a wonderful time. I trust you had uh, time to rejoice in the peace that we have as Americans and the security that we are richly blessed with. We, of course, often as a, as a culture, we celebrate those who spread peace. Sometimes we even award them. Um, the chief of those awards, of course, is uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, which is given away in the fall to the individuals who most further peace in the recent years. It's always interesting to see who the esteemed Nobel Committee thinks has most advanced peace. Sometimes not everybody agrees with their decision. Um, not to get... Partisan in any way, uh, but not everybody agreed with the decision in 2009 to award the Nobel Peace Prize to President Obama just months into his presidency. Or uh, e equally um, 
kind of lampooned was the uh, 2012 Nobel Peace Prize awarded to the European Union or the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize, which was awarded to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. It it was somewhat... um, Odd choice in light of 2017. You may not remember all what was happening in North Korea at that time and all that was happening in Iran and kind of continues to do so. In fact, one prominent um, uh, uh, publication said that it was 2017's wasted Nobel Peace Prize. Well, one prize that I think we would all agree was worthy was awarded in 1970. It was awarded to a man named Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug developed a strain of wheat that is able to grow in very arid places like India and Africa, places that once faced unimaginable famines. It has been estimated that this strain of wheat has saved 2 billion people from starvation. And so he was rightly, I think, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in addition to the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. This man literally changed the course of human history. And so that way, I I think he's in some ways like the Apostle Paul. Paul, too, has changed the course of human history. I think whether you believe what Paul taught at all, I think that's uh, beyond dispute, that this man changed literally the world. In fact, even his opponents recognized this. You remember when they rose up, that mob rose up in Thessalonica, we saw in Acts 17, they shouted before the authorities, these men have turned the world upside down saying there is another king, Jesus. Of course, not many of us will change the world, like Paul or Norman Borlaug. But all of us can leave a mark. All of us can leave an imprint, change a life for King Jesus. All of us can live, if you will, a life well spent. My friends, you will spend your life. You'll spend it on something. You might spend it on yourselves. Maybe you'll spend it for others. Maybe you'll spend it for King Jesus. But I imagine all of us don't, none of us here wants to come to the end of our life and the the end of our, our years of ministry, the end of our job, and look back and see, you know, I was just going through the motions. I was just floating through life. I trust there's no one here that wants to look back and ask the question, okay, what did I accomplish with the life that I was given? And there is a resounding nothing as an answer. I think the truth is even for the Apostle Paul, for you know what he says there in verse 1 of chapter 2, for you know, uh, you, for you yourselves know, brothers, yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It's not in vain. That's a strange way to put that, don't you think? Um, our coming to you was not in vain. You almost would expect him to say, hey, you know that our coming to you was a great success. You know that our coming to you accomplished a great deal. But instead, he, he chooses the negative. He says, it wasn't in vain. And I think we can safely assume the reason he is putting, this way, putting it this way is because he is defending himself. Because precisely there are other people who are saying, yes, it was in vain. Right? If you receive a letter from someone and they say, I'm not a failure, right? you could assume that someone is saying they are a failure. And of course, Paul, we know he had his opponents, right? We've already mentioned they caused this riot, forcing Paul to flee in the middle of the night along with Sylvanus and Timothy. And it's, it's, we could probably conclude that his opponents were not done at that point. 
Now that they're gone, they seek to discredit these church planners, these missionaries. And I don't think it's hard to imagine what they might have said to these fledgling Christians, this fledgling church in Thessalonica. Perhaps they came to him and said, who was that guy anyways? We don't know him. He comes in from out of town. He's here for a month. I mean, how can you trust him? And, and, and yeah, I mean, he, he knows his Bible. He could quote that for sure. But there's plenty of people that could quote Scripture. And perhaps he was just here. In fact, we're pretty sure that he was here just to get your money. And if not your money, he was here to get your women. And if not your women, he was here to get your adoration. And it was only when we realized the harm that he was causing you and we had the courage to actually oppose him, he saw that he couldn't take advantage of you anymore. He saw that the gig is up. And so what does he do? He waits to the cover of night, doesn't he? And he creeps away like the coward that he is, leaving you alone. Well, by the way, they might have asked, have you heard from him since? No, I didn't think so. No, he was just another religious charlatan who came to fleece you as long as he could, and you fell for it. I mean, that sounds almost plausible, doesn't it? It seems as if Paul has gotten word of this slander, and he then comes and he writes this letter in many ways for his, in his defense. Because if Paul's discredited, Paul doesn't really care about him, him being discredited, but if he's discredited, his message is therefore a sham, and that their new faith is a farce. And Paul wouldn't let that happen. He loved them far too much. And so we come to this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, where Paul, if you will, takes the witness stand to defend himself. In, chapters, in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, he defends his, his, uh, the, his ministry with them. His ministry with them. And then beginning in verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 3, he defends his absence from them. We're going to spend about four weeks studying uh, this defense that Paul gives us. And you'll note when we do, Paul is continually asking them to recall the time that he had with them. And so you'll see this over and over again, especially in our passage. You know, he says, you know I was like this. You know I was like this. You remember. You witnessed. And and, and here he is, he's de- as a defendant, appealing to a jury. And really, he defends three things about his ministry with him, about the life that he spent there in Thessalonica. He defends, first of all, his message, secondly, his motives, and third, his manner, or, or if you will, the what, the why, and the how of his ministry. And I think what's so wonderful about this is this outline, in fact, it's so clear, I, I know that I think at least four pastors, which I consulted, all have this same outline. It seems that, that is, is abundantly clear what Paul is doing here, and, and it's helpful for us because he's giving us a model to follow. And so if you too, as I trust you do, seek to live a life well spent, a life not in vain, well, I think you would do well to heed the example of our brother Paul as he first of all defends his message. His message. So what, what was his message? Well, if you, we've already, in fact, saw back in chapter 1, but we'll see it again here. It was the gospel. It was the gospel. Look what he says in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
Right? So I declare to you the gospel of God. In verse 8, he'll say, I shared with you the gospel of God. In verse 9, he'll say, I proclaim to you the gospel of God. In other words, we are not a bunch of traveling entertainers. We didn't roll into town lecturing on advanced philosophies in life. We didn't even come here to give you the, the newest self-help breakthroughs. Right? I wasn't here to espouse my opinion on what's going on. I'm so helped by Paul Tripp who says the last thing my people need is my opinion. Right? Paul says, I'm not here to give you my opinion. I came to tell you what God did through Jesus in order to save you. Right? I came to tell you, just as Cody prayed beautifully, that, that God has made this world and he has made you and I in it. And all of us have rebelled against him. We have all sinned against him. And because God is good and holy, he will judge those in sin. And yet, because God is loving and merciful, he sent his son into this world to live a life in your place and to die a death in your place, to pay the penalty for your sin. And three days later, he triumphed over the grave as the firstborn among the dead, showing that God intends to renew all creation. And now he calls for you to trust in King Jesus through faith and repentance. And so Paul said, this is what I did. I came with the gospel of God. I didn't come just trying to be a positive and encouraging force in your life. Though I want to encourage you, I came to tell you about Jesus. And my brothers and sisters, I may beat this drum too often, but I am repeatedly dismayed at the truncated gospel that is proclaimed in our day. And it's on the airwaves, and it's on the radio, and it's in churches And so may I lovingly caution you to beware of those who claim to be preachers and teachers on behalf of Christ, and yet they focus far more on man than on God. And that you ought to beware of those who focus far more on teaching you about all the blessings that you get now in this life, rather than focusing on the life to come. And you ought to beware of those who are simply there to encourage you to be all you can be, rather than calling you to carry your cross, rather than calling you into repentance and holiness. You ought to beware of those who focus on all the easy life that you can have in this day, rather than the suffering which God calls us into on behalf of King Jesus and for the lost. See, Paul says, listen... I didn't come with all this nonsense. I'm, in fact, he says, I'm entrusted with the gospel. Look what he says in verse 4. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, I'm a steward of God's message. And so my job as a preacher, Paul says, and I think every preacher's job and every Bible teacher's job is not to impress the students or the hearers. It's not to be innovative. It's not to have uh, messages full with just chuckles and we're all feeling good about ourselves and isn't that great. Our job is to go and listen to what the king has said and then explain it to his people. And so Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us. How should we regard you? As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I'm a steward. I've been entrusted, he says. None other than John Stott, who has been 
a great blessing in my life. Saw this as his calling as well. In fact, John Stott was in his third year in an Oxford education when he decided that God was calling him into the ministry and he would not be completing his degree at Oxford. He wrote to a rather dismayed father saying, whatever you may think, father, I have a definite and irresistible call from God to serve him in the church. During the last three years, I have become increasingly conscious of this call and my life can be summed up in the words separated unto the gospel of God. He concludes saying, there is no higher service, I ask no other. Now let me just say, even as we're working through this passage, you could already kind of see this has a great deal of very specific application towards those in the pastoral ministry. And so if you don't mind me preaching to myself a little bit this morning, um, this is an incredibly helpful passage for me. And I think for all who want to serve God's people as an elder or as a shepherd, of course, there's application for us all. But I read this passage, and I think how I could preach, I'm pretty sure I could just get up here and give you a list of how-tos and do okay. I think I could come up here and just give a, a, a message just filled with moving story after moving story, and we'll all be crying one moment, and then we'll be laughing the next. And I could sprinkle a verse on top of that and just to make sure it looks Christian, and the church might even grow. But my friends, I don't know that kind of teaching will cause your heart to fall more and more in love with God. I don't know if that kind of teaching inspires living for others in the gospel. I'd much rather learn what God has to say and then have the great opportunity, the glorious calling, to explain what God has said to you. And so I think when we come, this is perhaps the application for you. When you come and you listen to a sermon, as many of you do week after week, you should not think of it in terms of a performance. You should not think of it in terms of I'm going to a movie. And you, you walk out of the movie and we say, well, did you like that movie? Uh, it was okay. And uh, I didn't understand um, why, why it wasn't better than the last one. And I hope the sequel is even better than this one and all the rest. And you have this, per, this evaluating mind. The, the sermon is not a performance. If you want a metaphor, it is much better to be understood as a meal. And, 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 of course, you want the meal to taste good, and you might even want it to look nice. But the purpose of a meal is to produce health and strength and vibrancy, right? And so week after week, the goal of sitting under the preaching of God's Word is not to be moved by a performance, but by to be continually strengthened by God's Word. That it might be a new, spiritually nutritious to you, leading to vibrancy and endurance and obedience, And so Paul says, listen, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm just coming with the gospel. I've been entrusted with the gospel. And so you say, well, that's good for you, Paul, and good for you, John Stott, and maybe good for you, Stephen Carn. But what what about me? What about me? Well, look what he says. Look very carefully in verse 4. Notice the pronoun he uses. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We? Who's the we? Well, I think it's verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, Timothy, right? It's we. 15 years later, by the way, Timothy would be pastoring a church in Ephesus. And Paul would write to him. And in chapter 2, verse 2, you might know this verse. He says, what you have heard from me in trust. There's that word again, to faithful men who will be able to teach others. 
So the gospel was entrusted to Paul, and Paul said, I then entrusted it to you, Timothy. Now, Timothy, you entrust that to other faithful men who can what? Then pass that on to still a fourth generation, and the baton keeps getting handed off and off and off it goes, right? And this is, of course, what, what God is doing in our lives. This is what God has been doing for 2,000 years, and you are in that lineage. You have the baton. You, too, have been entrusted with the gospel. I mean, what did you receive when you received Christ? You say, oh, forgiveness? Yes. Mercy? Of course. Eternal life? Yes. The Holy Spirit? Yes, of course. The, the, the Holy Spirit indwelling you? Yes. You've been adopted in God's family? Yes. You've received all of that. But what about an obligation? What about an entrustment? Did you receive an entrustment from God when you received Christ? My friends, the Bible is unequivocal. Yes. Yes, you are to be a steward of the gospel. You're entrusted with it. We, therefore, as we even considered last week, we must share it. Right? You, God has not just brought you to himself so you could go to church on Sundays and live a nice Christian life. You have been given a commission. We all have the same commission. It's to make disciples. Even as Pastor Josh reminded us this morning, that we exist to make disciples for the glory of God. And you're not doing that unless you're sharing the gospel. And, and, and you need to do that even if it costs you. It clearly costs Paul, as you see back, back up there in verse 2. What did he say? But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. So he says, listen, with the town we came from, we suffered. The town we came from, Philippi, we were shamefully treated. Right? And you remember that story. Dragged before the entire city by a mob, stripped naked from head to toe, and beaten with rods. And then, for good measure, thrown into the inner dungeon and your feet locked in stockades. Yeah, suffering. I should say so. That, that type of treatment might even make you want to find a different line of work, right? I mean, this is, I mean, has that ever happened? When was the last time you've been beaten by rods? And Paul says, listen, we, we suffered, right? We, we were shamefully treated. It's Andrew Young who said Paul and his friends had not strolled into the city as relaxed and overfed tourists. They entered still sporting the scars of woeful mishandling in Philippi. Treatment like this would have been enough to stop any phony mission in its tracks. But it's not a phony mission. Like, you only suffer for what you believe in. And Paul says, if I'm just lining my pockets, I'd never have opened my mouth. Right? But we did. We did. In fact, we dared to. What does he say there in verse 2? We had boldness to. Boldness. And not to return to last week's sermon, but once again, we see this, this exhortation from Scripture that we as Christians must be bold. I think courage is, is missing from many of our lives. So few are willing to take risks for Jesus, right? After all, they might roll their eyes. And we wouldn't want that now, would we? They may, we might even create an awkward few seconds. And we wouldn't want that, would we? We might even lose a relationship and some economic opportunity blow it with a client. And we wouldn't want that, now would we? 
Paul says, yeah, I'll take that. If it means I could speak for Jesus, if it means I could be bold, if it means I could take risks for my king. And I do want to, I just want to, uh, for a moment, just kind of set the future for you. In particular for you who are members of Hamilton Baptist Church. The elders are increasingly convinced, and we've been kind of dribbling this out. You're going to be hearing more of this. But we're increasingly convinced that we are, as a church have come to a point where we need to begin to think of ourselves as a mother church. That is, that we need to begin, uh, we're at the point of health and, and vibrancy, that we need to begin to plant other churches. We need to begin to perhaps revitalize local dying churches. And in order for that to happen, some of you are going to have to say, I'll go. I'll go. Some of you are going to have to say, that sounds scary, that sounds risky, that sounds like it takes courage, but here I am, send me. And as we move forward, as we want to expand God's kingdom, we don't want to become a megachurch. We'll never become a megachurch. We want to be a mother church. And as we think about Lovettsville, and we think about maybe Berryville, and, and, and even Upperville, right? We want to hit all the villes, right? And um, we, we want there to be gospel preaching churches there. We want there to be gospel communities there. And, and, and so our heart and our desire, and we're going to talk about this in the members meeting next month, about well, the next steps, what does this look like as we think about the year 2021, of perhaps putting a church or starting a church in, in Lovettsville there, that this is going to, we need people to go. And this will be risky. But we need to take risks for King Jesus, don't we? And if it's not starting a new church, maybe it's taking a risk at work. Maybe it's being courageous with friends. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's speaking up and stop tucking your tail and saying, listen, this is my friend. I'm going to tell him about Jesus. He loves me. I love him. And we're going to talk about Christ. Right? You, we need to begin to be bold. And Paul says, listen, I, I'm bold. And the reason Paul's bold is he doesn't love comfort and he doesn't love man's approval. And so he, he could risk it all to be bold for Jesus, which kind of leads us to his motives. So we've seen his message. Consider, secondly, his motives. And your, your note sheet, if you're following along, should say verse 3, not verse 4. For we read in verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from, note this, he's refuting, he'll go on to refute five accusations. There in verse 3 he starts, for our appeal does not spring from error, number one, impurity, number two, or any attempt to deceive, number three. He says we're free from error. We know from Acts 17 he reasoned from Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah. He's very careful with the truth. He wasn't loose with the truth. He says, secondly, we are free from impurity. And perhaps the accusation is that he was there uh, to seduce the gullible with his smooth speech. We know, again, from Acts, that among his converts were, quote, not a few leading women. Right? A lot of women, prominent women are coming into the church. And maybe they were accusing Paul like other cult leaders in his day and in our day. He's just looking to fill his bed. And Paul says, no, you know me. I had the highest standards when it comes to purity and sexual morality, as should anyone who um, ever desires to be in some type of church and Christian leadership. 
I'm free from impurity, from error, from deception. There was no trickery. I wasn't baiting the hook. I wasn't trying to manipulate you. He'll write to the Corinthian church, we have renounced disgraceful and unhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Right? I'm not gonna, we're not going to do any tricks here. We're not going to do any kind of psychological manipulation here in order to get you to make some kind of decision. I'm just going to proclaim the word and let the power of God in the word bring you to salvation rather than trying to deceive you or to bait you or all the rest. We're free from deception, impurity, error. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says we're free from greed. We never came to you, he says, with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Flattery is when you compliment someone, not because you think it's true, but because you're trying to get something from them. Right? You tell them what they want to hear in order that they will give you what you want to have. And evidently, Paul's accused of wanting their money. A pretext for greed uh, he is being accused of. But he's not after their money. I mean, he's not selling the prayer hankies or the, or the water blessed from the Jordan River as all the crackpots on television seem to do these days. He's not asking them to send in their seed money in order that they might reap their blessing. Paul is not using them for his gain. He is using himself for theirs. They're not after your money. And the proof, by the way, is found in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So I didn't ask any of you. In fact, I worked all the time so I wouldn't be accused of this very thing I'm being accused of right now. We know from Acts 18 that Paul was a leather worker. Most of the time in this day, leather workers made tents. And so the kind of the, the classical assumption is that Paul was a as a tent worker, a tent maker, we know he did that in Ephesus, he did it in Corinth, and we know he did it here in Thessalonica. He says, I'm working here. But other places, he, he lived off preaching the gospel, uh, which he had a right to do. For the Bible says the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But in Thessalonica, Paul forgoes this right, precisely because he wants to avoid the charges of greed coming against him. He's willing to go without, in other words, for the sake of the gospel, so the gospel could not be discredited, which I think gave him incredible freedom, right? I'm not after your things. I'm not after your money, right? So now I'm free to tell you the truth. I, I, even if I'm upset to you, I can tell you the truth, right? I, I don't have to flatter you because I'm not living for things. And what a, what a strong word for us, because materialism is the air we breathe. It is. And so many are living to get and get and get and get, and giving is, is kind of last on our mind, and it will suffocate, I think, a life of significance, a life well spent if all you're living for is to get more and more and more. I appreciate what the Russian poet Joseph Bronsky said when he addressed the students at Dartmouth University, warning these bright young minds of their future. This is what he said. I'm not sure it was encouraging to them, but I find it profound. You will be bored with your work, your spouses, your lovers, the view from your window, the furniture or wallpaper in your rooms, your thoughts, yourselves. You will try to devise ways to escape. Apart from self-gratifying gadgets, you may take up changing jobs. 
residence, company, country, climate. You may take up promiscuity, alcohol, travel, cooking lessons, drugs, psychoanalysis. You may lump them together. (coughs) Excuse me. You may lump them together. I'll get it out in a second. Pardon me. That may work. Until the day, he writes, or says, when you wake up in your bedroom among a new family and different wallpaper in a different state with a heap of bills from your travel agent and your shrink, yet with the same stale feeling towards the light of dawn pouring through your window. I mean, that's quite the commencement address, isn't it? In other words, don't believe the lie. It's in your heart. It's in our culture. If you get this, if you get that, if you do this, do that, then you get joy. Then you get happiness. Then you get peace. But but, my friends, the Bible says if you find your identity instead, not in the things you have, but in the one who loves you, namely in Jesus Christ, then rather living to get, you can live to give. You can think about how can I give myself away? How can I serve? How can I love? And when you give yourself, you will find, just as Paul found, you are living a life that is not in vain. He says, I I didn't come for greed. And then fifthly, he says, I was free from the need of man's approval. Note what he says again in verse 4. But we have been approved by God uh, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And in case we didn't get it, he says again in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. I wasn't living to please you. Now again, this is vital, I think, for anyone who wants to serve in church leadership, in particular for pastors. Because if you, if you get your strokes from people, you will, you will find that you only preach and you only teach what people want to hear. And the Bible has a name for that. You know what it is? It's called a false teacher a false prophet, and churches are filled with them, I'm afraid. I think it was Spurgeon, well, I know it was Spurgeon, who said very helpfully, it is not the preacher's business to seek to please his congregation. If he labors for that end, he will all, in all probability not attain it, but if he should see, succeed in gaining it, what a miserable success it would be. We ought to preach many truths, which will irritate our hearers. Okay? Maybe you're thinking, okay, now I'm starting to understand Stephen's ministry here. Okay? Okay? Look, he says, as the physician must give bitter draughts to his patients if he cure them of their diseases, so must the preacher proclaim unpalatable truths to his hearers. And Paul's not living for man's approval. I love how Alistair Begg imagines a conversation and we're thinking about do we live for man's approval over a, a hypothetical conversation about Moses as, if you will, the new pastor of Israel. And maybe the conversation, he says, would go like this. Hey, I hear you got a new pastor. Yeah, we did. It's Moses, and he is amazing. Right? He does this thing with the staff, and it's a snake all of a sudden. And, right? he, does, you know, he walks up the seas, and they part, and he goes up the mountains, and he comes down with tablets, and it's just, we're super excited. 
we love this guy. Okay? And a few years later, the conversation resumes, and the guy says, well, how's, how's, how's your Pastor Moses doing? And the guy says, well, you know, he's not really what we thought he was. I mean, all, all we're getting is manna, 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 right? I mean, what, there's no more miracle. I mean, it's just Bible, 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 and, I mean, you know, do some miracles. Or, I mean, what, what, do what you used to do. And then you got Moses over on the corner, right? And what's Moses doing? Oh, come on, guys, please like me, right? I, I hate it when you say these things about me. I want you to like me. Right? What a failure that would be. A preacher cannot live and die on the tongue of people. It's not to say that they can't be accountable. They have to listen to the wise counsel and even criticism of others. They need to prayerfully consider that. But they, you, not just preachers, all of us cannot be tyrannized by a fear of criticism or, or a longing of applause. Right? We can't live for man's approval. And so, it's so subtle as we so often do. Right? Your boss comes in and he says, okay, you know, how's the report? And you say, well, it's almost done. But in reality, you haven't even started it, right? And you, because you don't want to look lazy. You're afraid what he'll think of you. And you're living. It's so easy to live for man's approval. And when we do, we become a fake. We're constantly posturing. We're constantly exaggerating. We're constantly posing in order to get God's appro- uh, people's approval. And when we don't get people's approval, what happens? We're crushed. We're filled with dismay. And, and, and we'll, well, you know what, if someone doesn't like us, we'll leave that group in a second. We're out of there, right? And we'll leave that church in a second. We're gone. Someone doesn't like me there, I'm gone. Because we're living for people's approval. And how many people go from church to church to church to church? I'm there for two years, and then I'm off to this one for 18 months. And then someone doesn't like me, and then I'm off to this one over there. Because, and then I'm going on because someone was a, a, annoyed with me. And they go from friends to friends to friends to friends. And sadly, some people go from family to family to family to family. Because all the while, they're living for people to applaud them. Good job. You're great. And once someone doesn't applaud them, they're crushed, and off they go all the while almost making no impact on those around them. Paul says, I'm not dealing with that nonsense. I don't live for your applause. I have been approved by God himself. What can you give me? And my friends, there is such freedom in having having the ability to not constantly seek to get people to like you. And yet so, so few have mastered this. Perhaps I've, I've shared with you the story. Um, in fact, I, I, think I, I think I know I have. I don't even know if it's true, by the way. I just love the story. Um, it's, uh, in, in New York City, uh, there are uh, approximately 8 million cats. 8 million cats in New York City. Now, New York City's a, a city of steel and concrete. So what happens when a cat dies? I don't know why I'm smiling. What happens when a cat dies, okay? Right? What? Well, the city runs a program. It costs you 50 bucks. The city comes and takes your cat and disposes of your cat. You can't go out and bury your cat, right, um, in New York City. Well, the, a very enterprising woman said, well, I, I, I see an opportunity here. And she ran an ad in the paper saying, if your cat dies, call me and I'll, I'll take care of it for $25, half off. And what she would do is she would go to the thrift stores and buy, you know, a dollar suitcase and a dollar bag here. And she would go to your house and take the, you know, little Felix and he put the kitty in the, in the bag. And then she would go ride the subway around evening time. And she would just kind of set her uh, case down by the door there and uh, pretend she wasn't looking. 
and it's just a time of thieves and pickpockets. And, you know, before long, someone comes, door opens, grabs the bag, and off they go. And, of course, she's hollering, stop, thief, thief, right? All knowing they're in for, you know, quite, quite a surprise, right? Well, like I said, I don't know if the story's true, but I think it's a powerful, a wonderful parable that describes really how most, many Americans are living their lives. I mean, they're chasing after that which they think holds the key to happiness, and it's actually full of death. It's, it's, it's not what it promises to be. Right? And so many people are just, I, I want people to think, think I'm great. Right? And Paul says, no, I, I want to please God. God's accepted me. God's called me. I belong to God. And my friends, to the degree in which you find your identity in Christ, you can say, let them think what they will. That doesn't matter to me. I'm free to love God and to serve others. And so we see Paul's motives there, don't we? See his message, the what, motives, the why, and now lastly, if you will, his manner or the how. How, how did he spend his life? How did he minister? Well, verse 8, I think, is perhaps the most impactful verse to me in this whole passage. So being affectionately desirous of you, he says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So, listen, we know, if you know anything about Paul, you know Paul loves the gospel. You know Paul loves doctrine. But what about people? Does Paul love people? Look what he says. He says, I didn't want to share with you the word. I wanted to share with you my life. I didn't just want to share with you doctrine. Literally, it's I wanted to share with you my soul, which I think is just a wonderful summation of of ministry, that we teach the word, proclaim the word, and we love people, that we're men and women of truth and love, and that there's a balance there. In fact, John Stott helped me with this years ago in his commentary in 1 John when he says, without love, truth grows hard. And without, without truth, love grows soft. Some people just love and love and have no regard for the truth. Others, it's just cold application of truth with little affection. And Paul says, no, I got both. Like truth and love, they're shoulder to shoulder. Truth and love, they sleep in the same bed and they inhabit the same heart and they dwell in the same church. He says, I, 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 um, I, I brought both truth and love. And he seems to be descri- looking for a metaphor to describe how much he loves them. And he goes on, believe it or not, and says, the gospel made me into a nursing mother. Now, I'm not sure that's the metaphor I would use, all right? But that's what he does. Look what he says in verse 7. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He says, my ministry was maternal. Maternal in three different ways. He says, of course, there in verse 7, it was gentle. I was gentle with you like a nursing mother. You ever see a, a mother with a newborn? Right? I mean, I've had the privilege of seeing that a number of times, and there is, of course, some wonderful bond between a mother and a newborn that I, to be honest, I think a dad is just a stranger to. Right? We just can't quite can't appreciate that. Right? The, the, uh, I don't know if you've had this experience, but we've had a number of times where baby's been born, maybe 12 hours old, and in comes the hospital pediatrician, right? And, and it comes in and wakes everybody up and starts poking the baby and prodding the baby and grabs the baby by the ankle and shines a light up her nose and all the rest and is slapping the baby around. And uh, the baby's screaming and the mom's cringing and, and the pediatrician says, well, she looks great. She's great. And the mom's thinking, yeah, she was great until you came in here. Everything was fine, right? And then as soon as he, as soon as he leaves, at least my wife says, give me that child. And almost immediately as the child lies or nurses, this child's immediately soothed. This is gentle, tender bond. 
That's what Paul's saying. That's how I was. And by the way, that doesn't end as a, as a newborn, does it? I mean, how many times when your kids get hurt do they start screaming, I want daddy, right? No, I don't want daddy. They want mom. Why? Mom is, gent- mom is gentle. Mom gives kisses. Dad gives lectures, right? Okay. right? Rub some dirt on it. Get back out there. Come on. Paul says, I was gentle with you, like a nursing mother. He says, I was affectionate with you, like a mother. He says that there in verse 8. I mean, he's almost getting a little carried away, isn't he? So being affectionately desirous of you. He says, I love you. You're dear to me. I want to be with you. You see this throughout the letter. He'll later on say, you're my joy. You're my crown. You're my hope. I long to see you face to face when I couldn't stand not knowing about you. We sent Timothy to you, right? I, I, I want to be with you. And so despite the accusations, it's not, it's not, it's not slip out the backjack kind of nonsense, right? Not make a new plan stand. I just got to right, get yourself free. Paul said, I don't want to get free. I want to be with you. I, I affectionately desire you. In fact, that same phrase there is what they would do to imprint onto headstones of children, dead children. And it's a way of saying, I miss you. I long for you. I want to walk you to school again. I want to eat lunch with you again. I want to laugh with you again. And this is how Paul feels towards these brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how we are to feel towards one another. Right? In fact, he says in Romans 12, we ought to love one another with brotherly affection. Listen, the gospel should create affection in your hearts towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? The gospel should do that work within us. It should have, as one pastor said, the same effect that a terminal disease might have. You ever see someone with a terminal disease and the world's passing away and, and, and some things become pointless to them? which were once valuable, and some things that that may have dismissed become precious to them. What becomes precious? Namely people. Namely people, maybe brothers and sisters in Christ, and the grudges all of a sudden aren't as important. The frustrations fade. You love them. That's what happens when the gospel abounds in our heart. We love each other more deeply. We long to be with each other. We long to connect with them, share our lives with them. I wonder, do you have people that you would say, listen, I affectionately desire you. I, 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 wa- I'm, I want to share my soul with you. Are you sharing your soul? Right? Do you long for anyone? I think if we're to live a life of significance, we must love deeply. Well, then he says, we're not only gentle like a mother and affectionate like a mother, we are sacrificial like a mother. You see in there in verse 9, as we've already noted, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that while we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim the gospel of God. So I didn't want to burden you. I wanted to ease your burden, right? I, I, I just wanted to give to you. That seems a lot like motherhood to me, right? You give yourself away. You give and you give and you give with no thought, really, of what you get in return. I mean, how many times in your house when, when mom's winding down for the night, the kid comes in and says, oh, mom, I forgot this, right? I have to have this in the morning. This has to be done, right? And, and mom fixes it. Mom helps. Mom gives. Mom sacrifices. Paul says, that's how I cared for you. You know, in the, in the New Testament, there are over 71 another's in the Bible. One another's, like love one another, serve one another, uh, help one another, exhort one another. There's sev- 70 of them. And please understand that you can't obey any of them in isolation. Right? You need to be involved in people's lives. The way we do that here at Hamilton Baptist Church is through our community groups. 
The community groups is where discipleship takes place, ministry, shepherding, care takes place. And I hope you understand that our community groups is not simply just another ministry of our church. It's in many ways the core of, of how we understand ourselves as a church. And so we gather corporately on Sunday mornings like we're doing now. And then we gather in each other's homes throughout the week. Just as we see the first church doing in Acts chapter 2. And there we gather and you say, well, what do I want to be in a community group for? You know, I don't think I'll get much out of it. You see, well, that's the wrong question, isn't it? What do you have to give? In fact, in giving, you'll actually find that it's better to give than it is to receive. I think someone has said that before, haven't they? You're made to give. You're made to, to give of your life. And what a wonderful opportunity this ministry model is. He says, my ministry was maternal. And lastly, we'll see, and when we consider his manner, it was not just maternal, it was paternal. As you know, in verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children... And so he's describing himself here as a father, and as a father, he came to them with an example and an encouragement. So a father, a father's example there in verse 10, you are witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. So he, mo- he says, I want to model a life of significance. I want to show you what a mature Christian's like, because we learn often by, not by explaining, but by observing. He describes his life in three different ways. Before God, I was holy. I was devout. I was set apart. Before, before you, I was righteous. There was no obvious patterns of sin. Before the world, I was blameless. He says, they may accuse me of sin, but, but it won't stick on me. He, I was a man of honesty and integrity. And he wants to be an example for his spiritual children, doesn't he? And the same is true for us. We ought to be an example to one another. If we do that, we need to live lives together. Right? Be an example for, for their good. Are you an example? In what way are you an example to others? Well, you see, he's just not an example, but he's a teacher as well, just like dads. He's a, he's a model and a motivator. He gives an example and an encouragement, as you know, in verse 12. He says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Right? We exhorted, we encouraged we urged. Right? This is what we, we need to live with one another. And part of our ministry is encouraging one another and challenging one another. Right? And that we would exhort one another towards godliness. Right? And, and by the way, when you encourage one another, it doesn't mean you don't call them out on their sin. It doesn't mean you don't call for obedience. Paul's going to call for obedience in chapter 4 when it comes to sexual purity. He's going to call for obedience with uh, gossips and busybodies, right? So he's not saying, I'm just here to, to say nice things. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to exhort you. Right? Do, you do you do that in people's lives? Do you exhort others? Do you encourage others? I, I think probably one of the most seismic shifts in my own life was when a, a brother of mine um, wrote me a letter when I was 19 years old in college. And he pointed out how I was living in open rebellion to sin, uh, to God in sin. I was justifying it all the way home. And he says, you can't live that way. And he really said, listen, man, you got one foot in the world, one foot in God, and you have to decide because this ain't working. And it took great courage. In fact, I was very defensive when I received that letter. And it was only after a little while that I realized he was spot on, 100% right. And God used that to lead to a great course correction in my life and a great deal of repentance. Because someone loved me enough to risk that relationship and call me out and exhort me 
to walk in a manner worthy of God. Isn't that what he says? Walk in a manner worthy of God. He's called us into his kingdom. He's invited us into his glory. And so we should live a life worthy of that calling. We should live a life to help others to do the same, to live this life. It might be through fatherly encouragement, motherly love, sharing our souls and the truth that we've been entrusted with. We give ourselves away. I think it was John Piper who has said over and again, you, you are a fountain, not a drain. That's what you are, just like God. You're designed to flow into people's lives, not just to suck into your own life. And so we pour ourselves out, and that's hard, and it's tiring, and it's risky, and it's full of Christ-like joy and freedom. And where do we see the greatest example? Of course, in Jesus himself. Loving you, giving himself away, even to the point of death on the cross, that you and I might be saved. And now exhort you, in light of what he's done into obedience. Maybe there are some here who have not received Christ. Please understand, the Bible says that you are saved by a holy God, not through your good works, not through your, your, all the good things you do, but by trusting in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, he then sends us out to live like Jesus and to make an impact on someone's life. I mentioned to you as we close this morning, Norman Borlaug, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. His journey, interestingly enough, starts 79 years earlier in a man you might, you probably have heard of, George Washington Carver. Carver was a brilliant student. He had a, a special love for two things, art and plants. And his art teacher was a woman named Etta Budd, and she encouraged uh, Carver to attend college, to, in fact, to study at Iowa State University. Well, he did. But it didn't go so well. Uh, he was the only black student there at Iowa State University in 1891. He therefore didn't live in the dorms. He did not eat with the other students. In fact, he was so despondent, so isolated, so miserable that he was very close to dropping out of school when one day his old art teacher, Etta Budd, came and visited him. She found him alone eating by himself in the cafeteria kitchen. And out of love for George Washington Carver and out of love for Jesus Christ, she took Carver by the hand and walked him defiantly into the cafeteria. And there they sat down together with the other students and ate that meal. She came back the next day and did the same thing. And the day after and the day after until everyone got used to George Washington Carver, including a professor named Wallace. In fact, Professor Wallace and George Washington Carver became such good friends that he would often eat at Professor Wallace's home and even sleep over there on occasion. And during those days, George Washington Carver began to take care of Professor Wallace, Wallace's son, Henry. And Carver and Henry, they would go out on long walks, and he would teach little six-year-old Henry about the science of plants and flowers. As a result, Henry would have this great love for agriculture and when he grew up, he would actually become the Secretary of Agriculture. And then eventually the 33rd Vice President under FDR. Well, uh, this, this uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Henry Wallace, um, um, had a vision of having a wheat strain grow in arid places. And so he hired, started a lab and hired this young man named Norman Borlaug. The point of sharing this with you is that not many of us 
will become the vice president like Henry Wallace. Right? Not many of us will invent you know, 300 uses of a peanut like George Washington Carver. Not many of us will win the Nobel Peace Prize like Norman Borlaug. But all of us, out of a commitment to Christ, can be an Edibud who sees our brothers and sisters in need and give ourselves away in service that we might not live a life in vain. Our Father, we're thankful for this wonderful example and challenge is to us. May you work in our hearts. Perhaps we need to reevaluate our lives, even in light of these truths. That you might present opportunities of service and ministry, that there might be others in our lives to whom we can love and serve and even share the gospel. That we would have it as our ambition to live a life well spent for the glory of our King Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.